Hi, welcome to the Recovery Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Miller. I'm a stroke survivor and grateful recovering alcoholic. And thanks for joining me. Today, I'll be talking about loneliness is a choice. I am reminded of The Piano Man by Billy Joel. I was listening to that right before I started the podcast. Um, the What came to mind, because uh, somebody reminded me of it early this morning in my morning sobriety meeting, they were sharing a drink they called loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. And so... <clears throat> I pulled up the song and I was listening to it. Excuse me. I was listening to it and I was like picturing that bar scene and I was just feeling very icky. I was feeling that loneliness feeling that I felt it kind of existed underneath all the fun when I was at a bar. And I don't know, it I just when I picture that, I just feel it so intensely. Um, So I love the song, but I was just thinking how uh, I never want to go back there. I never want to go back there. So I've heard a lot of people in the program in my sobriety program, talk about how they never felt like they fit fit in and we talk about how when we get um towards the later part of our drinking um a lot of isolation we start isolating ourselves what i've noticed in my stroke recovery is this similar feeling of wanting to isolate it's it's kind of feels a bit like a pity party um that's what we used to call it back when I was young we called it a pity party stop having a pity party and get you know it 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 always was followed with get up and do something it it was followed with take an action because um We say in the program, I think I mentioned it yesterday, act your way um, to better thinking. And it's, it it very much applies, I feel like, with a lot of things. Um, And it starts when we're younger. And so when I was a kid, I, I always felt lonely. I always felt lonely. I remember this. Gosh, I mean, I don't remember not feeling lonely until I got sober. I really don't. I can, I can pull back snapshots in my head of when I was a kid in elementary school and feeling like, yeah, I had friends, but I never felt like everyone else looked. You know, I never felt as happy and complete and satisfied as everyone else looked like they were. 
Now I understand as an adult that things aren't always as good as they seem. You know, we talk about, um, well, I shouldn't say we talk about, I was thinking about in, in my family, we've talked about how, um, people on the outside, like your neighbors, they look like they're all happy go lucky and everything's wonderful. And then you realize that there was a lot of shit going on behind closed doors. And, and so I try to remember this when I look at somebody else or another family or something like that. I, I know more quickly that things are never really what they seem. So that person is no more feeling like they fit in than I do. They aren't cooler than me. They don't have a better life than me. They don't have a better relationship than me. Um, it's just we, as much as I try to put on a professional face at work or a happy face um, to my neighbors and stuff. Everybody else is doing that for me too. And we don't really get to know each other um, real deeply until we go through something meaningful together. That's what it seems like. You know, even when we make new friends, it's really the difficult times that we are challenged and we lean on each other, that we really get to know one another and know what's actually going on on the inside. Um, but as I got older, I, you know, this alcohol thing was introduced to me. And that was my solution. I never felt like I was ever, I had, I never felt like I ever had to be alone again. I had my, my BFF named Vela. She was the box of Chardonnay and I took her everywhere. And before her, it was, um, it was Bud Light, my Bud Light cans. And, and the alcohol made that discomfort go away. But it was only gone while I was drinking. Um, it, it came back in full force when the alcohol wore off, you know, the next day. And at that point, the more and more I, I drank, the older I got, that feeling the next day was like, uh, what did I do? Because I did, I did things and acted in such a way that I wouldn't have, um, had I not been drinking because, um, I guess it just made me a little more confident, maybe a little too confident. Um, but I had a lot of people that wanted to hang out with me when I got older because I was always willing to drink always. If didn't matter what day of the week. If you wanted to drink, call Rachel because she'll drink with you. And it'll be a party. Like, she will not uh, end it early. Like, you know, 
I had a neighbor tell me um, when I was living in Charlestown that, you know, I thought we were going to be friends. Like we were learning about each other and I felt like we had a lot in common. But then one day, like she was kind of pulling away from me and I, I, I felt like it was her. I, I was thinking, huh, I wonder what's wrong with her. Well, she finally told me that she didn't want to hang out with me because I drank too much and she didn't want me around her kids. And I, you know, at that time when she told me that, I felt like I I, I didn't really get it. I didn't really under I certainly wasn't willing to drink less so that I could hang out with a friend like I'll find another friend who likes to drink with me but now that I'm sober I think back to that and I'm really sad I'm really sad that I made her feel that way you know and I'm sad for that person that I used to be that that would have made somebody somebody feel that way. So um, I never addressed that feeling of loneliness until I got sober. So 42 years, I, I had this feeling. It wasn't just loneliness. It was boredom also. I used to tell my mom all the time that I was bored. Um, And so I'll get into it a little more, but, you know, she had solutions for me, which was, it's always get up and do, you know, the answer is always get up and do. If you're bored, get up and do. If you're lonely, get up and do. You're having a pity party, get up and do. But get up and do what? Um, And I feel like now that I'm sober and I've been going through my sobriety program and now even more so it's been reinforced in my stroke recovery program that I'm building for myself that I start, I'm starting to understand what, what I need to do. And that's really what I wanted to talk about in this episode is what is it that I do when I need to get up and do? Um, so there's one quote that we say, I don't know if it's just in my sobriety program, um, or if it's something that's more widely known, but I hadn't heard this statement until um, I entered into recovery, and that is move a muscle, change a thought. I was told when I entered into sobriety to uh, be of service. This is one of the ways that you get out of yourself and, and start building relationships, building a network, volunteering for service positions. So so this is what I did. I actually was voluntold in the beginning to make coffee in the morning for my 
Saturday 10 a.m. meeting out in West Virginia. And uh, it was encouraged that I do this, that that it was going to be good for me. So in order to make coffee, you have to show up like at least a half an hour early um, to get this coffee machine going. So that's what I did. Um, And I was typically the first one there at this facility and I would start making the coffee. And then slowly people would trickle in. Some of the old timers would start trickling in and and I would have uh, conversations. And today, seven and a half years later, I, not even seven and a half, we'll say seven years later, I don't want to give myself more time than I actually have. Seven years later, I see that what was happening was that they set me up for getting uncomfortable. Because for most of us, it's uncomfortable to start doing the opposite of what we were doing when we were drinking. So although we were drinking and getting getting out and being with people, some of us, some of us were drinking alone, um, we were comfortable doing it because we were drinking. But if we weren't drinking, it was very uncomfortable to be around people. Um, Today, we have those cell phones that we can pick up. You know, we can be in the middle of a party and pick up the cell phone and just act like there's something important going on on our phone if we feel uncomfortable. Think about how many times you pick up your phone and look at it when you're uncomfortable. It's almost becoming this uh, crutch, a, a social crutch device. That's that's what it appears to be to me because I've watched myself do it. I've seen myself be left at a table because multiple people get up and go to the bathroom. And what do I do? I pick up my phone and I look at it <laughs> and there's nothing on it. <laughs> um, but I'll find something to do on it. Um, and so I've tried to stop doing that because I'm trying in every way I can to sit in discomfort because although I used to hate it, I'm starting to, it's starting to feel familiar. Discomfort is starting to feel familiar. I'm not afraid of it anymore. And that's because I'm forcing myself to do it. And it started with me going to these sobriety meetings and volunteering, uh, voluntolding, and and having those conversations with strangers, and and just learning how to shoot the shit with people, and we learn in the program also that even if you aren't 
uh, owning a service position at the time, it's always good to show up early and help clean up afterwards. And it's where, I mentioned this yesterday, that's where relationships are built. It's when people start sharing with you just what's going on without surrounding it with all of the, you know, recovery stuff that we talk about. It's just learning about a person as a person. And, um, and it's about learning the, the human being behind the disease. Um, and I, I expect that the same thing can happen for me in my stroke recovery. So I mentioned yesterday that I decided I need to get more involved. I need to meet more people and be more a part of the stroke survivor community. So I've been doing that. And I imagine that the more that I do this and the more that I start getting uncomfortable, that uh, that is going to start feeling familiar to me. Today, I went to another stroke survivor support group that was uh, that's located in Leesburg. And so the first half of it, there was a speaker talking about uh, talking about, I wrote it down, talking about health care, self-care. That's what it was. It was about self-care. So she was sharing about, um, meditation, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about in the podcast, um, meditation. And so next month is going to be nutrition. And so this was the first half of the meeting was talking about self-care And then the second half of the meeting was unplanned. It was uh, open discussion, if you will. So there wasn't a lot of talk about stroke recovery. It was really just people talking. And at the time, I was, I did have a couple times it crossed my mind just because I'm being honest why am I here you know I'm not learning anything well I remembered that sometimes the best part of the meeting is the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting and I was reminded that by that again in a podcast that I was listening to this evening, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and that's what that group was doing. It was informal conversation, just getting to know each other. And you know what ended up happening? My dog Autumn jumped up beside me and they asked me about my dog. And so I finally turned my mic on and shared about Autumn and Boris. And so, of course, I want to share about Autumn and Boris, you know. So they pulled me into the conversation, and it felt good. I feel a lot of times kind of bad that when I'm on these meetings, I either have to leave my camera off 
Or if I turn my camera on, I'm not looking at the computer and that's because of my eyes because it makes my head hurt. So I feel like I may be making other people feel like I'm not engaged in the conversation. Um, and I don't really know how to resolve that other than to send a chat message, which will again hurt my head, or just let them think whatever the hell they want to think and just continue to do it the way that I need to do it. Um, I, I'm assuming over time as I get to know these people that they'll, they'll get to know me and, and what my impairments are from my stroke. So that's what I'm hopeful of. So um, back to kind of, uh, I'm rewinding a bit more back to this feeling of loneliness and not feeling like a part of. Um, and I was thinking about when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, and I always told people, I'm friends with everybody. I'm just, I'm not a part of a, a, any specific clique. I'm friends with everybody. Well, I was friends with everybody and I wasn't part of a clique, but what I left out was the fact that I felt like I didn't fit in to a clique. I felt like I was not a solid part of something. That's what it felt like in high school. Um, at, you know, everybody was always nice to me. Everybody was. But it's not like on a Friday night when everybody was about to hang out that I was on anyone's list to hang out with. Um I don't know if other people thought I was hanging out with other people or I just wasn't thought of. I'm not quite sure. Um, if I hung out with anybody, it was always a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing um, with one uh, girlfriend or something like that. So even in when I was in college, I was in a sorority and there were over 50 people in that sorority and I didn't feel like I was a part of, I didn't feel comfortable. I never did. I don't know why. I had friends in the sorority. I had individual friends in the sorority, but I didn't, I never felt like a part of that, if the sorority was a big gigantic puzzle, I did not feel like I fit in it. I fit in it as a piece of that puzzle. I just didn't. I don't know why. I love all of those women. Um, and they were always very nice to me. But I just didn't feel it. Um, and I don't know if, if it was just me. But I, for the longest time, felt like it was them. You know, I felt like, well, nobody's making me feel included. But that is not the case. That's not true. That's not what happened. That's the story I was telling myself. What was really happening was 
happening inside of me. I didn't know how to fit in without drinking. So I just drank constantly. And without drinking, I was, I was uncomfortable and nervous. Sometimes even with drinking, I was uncomfortable and nervous. But if I was drinking, I didn't, it didn't register very deeply with me um, anybody's reaction to anything that I said or I, or I did. If I had uh, clear memories of people reacting to me, I probably would be ashamed or humiliated because I don't remember half of it, you know, what was going on. I just remember being at parties and just being like so carefree and and I didn't give a shit about anything um, because I was drinking. But I always felt at the end of the night when I went home, I always felt lonely. And it's not because I wanted to take some guy home or anything like that. It was because I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't get whatever it is I, I was seeking from that party. Like whether it was uh, building stronger relationships, maybe. I just didn't get it. Um, so this morning in my morning meeting, we were talking about um, loneliness. The The topic was fending off loneliness. And there were a few things that were shared and that um, came from the, the book Living Sober, the story called Fending Off Loneliness. Um, and, and what I heard were lots of different quotes. And one of the things that they were talking about was Halt, which I have an episode on. And I heard, I heard, uh, we're never alone. And I heard isolation versus insulation. And I heard somebody say, and I thought that this was adorable (laughs) this morning, a gentleman said that he was taking off for the day because he needed some solitary nutrition. And I thought that that was just cute. I've never heard that before. Um, So alcoholism is sometimes known as the lonely disease because it does tend to make people isolate. And I wonder if I were to look into recovery from other maladies and um, illnesses, what the level of isolation is or what the, the statistics of people who isolate in recovery from any sort of malady um, or illness because I'm betting that it's high. And I think it's high because if we're in recovery, no matter what it is, 
whether it's sobriety, it's a stroke. Those are the only two that I can speak about that I've experienced. But I can say that I feel very strongly that isolation is born from feeling different than the people around me because I feel like nobody's going to understand. I'm unique. And so I isolate. Nobody can help me. You know, nobody has whatever cure I need. Uh, I have to only, the only answers are on the inside of me and I don't have them. And that's, that's what I feel is happening when I isolate. When I was drinking, it helped me not feel lonely, not feel bored while I was drinking. It helped me not feel uncomfortable. But when the alcohol wore off, I was worse off every time. And when it wore off, those dialogues that I was having, all the important ones at least, because I wasn't having any important dialogues when I was drinking. You know, it was all party, party, party. There was nothing, there was nothing really meaningful happening when I was drinking. So when I would, when that alcohol would wore, wear off and I was worse off, that's when those important dialogues were happening on the inside of me. Um, I started writing poetry when I was in middle school. And I wrote poetry well into my 30s. I may have even written a couple before I got sober uh, when I was 42. This exercise of writing poetry was where my most important dialogue was happening. And I never shared them with anyone. I later, when I met my um, partner that I have now, I handed them to him. And I said, it, it was a gesture to him that I trusted him and that I wanted him to really know what, what I'm like on the inside. That, that, that was what I was trying to share with him. And, um, and I, I believe that he got, um, pretty choked up when I did it because I had shared with him how I've never shared those with anybody. And to this day, I still, I think I shared them now with my daughter and my son. I let them look at them, but, um, I, it's really because it's twofold. It's because the stuff that I wrote down is my deepest, darkest 
uh, feelings about things. And that's number one. Number two is I never wanted anybody to think that if I'm sharing them with you, that I think that I'm a great poet. Because that's not why I did it. I did it because it was a way of journaling. So I was conditioned over all of these years to feel comfortable in loneliness. And I practiced whatever protective measures I needed to, to to protect me from my, from my own fears. And uh, what was I afraid of? I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of somebody hurting my feelings. I was afraid of showing somebody an open wound and having them just pour, you know, alcohol on it. You know what I mean? Like, I was afraid of somebody breaking me more than I was already broken because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't bear any more pain. I couldn't, I couldn't hold anything else up. It was hard enough for me to hold up my own chin. Um, And this was my whole life. It makes me really sad that 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 is the person that I was I was trying to keep alive all this time. It wasn't until I got sober when I was 42 that I was able to it, it was like the real me escaped from the inside this jail cell that I was in within me. And all of a sudden now I can look back at that shell of a person, that, that inmate, and, and, and feel so sorry that she didn't have the tools that she needed to survive, to be more joyful in life. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to, I didn't know anything was wrong, much less how to help myself. And it wasn't until I put down the drink that, that I was able to see that. So after seven years of being in my sobriety program and seven years of practicing um, acceptance and, and getting comfortable being uncomfortable, being brave enough to reach out to people to talk to people. And that started by talking to my sponsor. These steps that we learn in sobriety are, are a way of practicing, introducing to a person that doesn't know how to do it, how to be a part of society, you know, how to stop isolating And just as isolation was familiar to me, um, I'm learning how to make socializing more familiar. And I'm getting, 
I'm getting pretty darn good at it. I really am. But it has taken practice. It's taken years of practice. My self-talk before I got sober was terrible. You know, I've talked a little bit about that. And I understand today because of my sobriety program that it's safer for me to travel this journey of recovery with somebody else. And that's what I know that I need to do with my stroke recovery. I need to travel with other people. And that's why yesterday I made that decision. Look, something is unsettled with within me. That means I need to reach out, you know, um, stop having a pity party, do something about it. And so that's what I started doing yesterday. And I've already perked back up, but I can't just stop there. It's not like I need to just reach out, you know, send a couple emails, go to a couple um, support group meetings, and I'm fixed. This is when I make a decision that I need to do something, it's a decision to integrate this into my life um, long term. It's about interweaving these ideas and these relationships and these um, techniques into my life as a whole, introducing, um, introducing being a part of something bigger than myself. And so I'm not needing to remove anything. I don't need to repair something that's broken right now. I'm just feeling human feelings right now. At least that's what I, you know, I'll look at this seven years from now and be like, oh, she was so, (laughs) she didn't know what she was talking about, but You know, today I feel like I need to pull in more people, you know, more community around me. And I was thinking about how dependent we are on each other and as human beings, and we don't even recognize it. I was thinking today about how how many people, people, how many human beings I'm dependent on to simply go to the store and pick up a loaf of bread. Like if, well, number one today, because my eyes don't work, I rely on my boyfriend to take me to the store. But The people who, you know, build our cars, build our roads, build our stores, make the bread, sell us the bread, you know, the list goes on and on. So why do I think when I'm in recovery or I have some sort of um, 
you know, problem or obstacle in my life, why wouldn't I, it be natural for me to be dependent on other people um, to travel this road together with me? We do it in every other aspect in our life. Why isn't it more natural and familiar and comfortable for us to lean on each other when when we really need it, when it's a matter of life and death? You know, when it's a matter of sickness and health, we need uh, input, at least I need input from other people in order to upset my thought loops, you know, to, to get me to, I think they say, uh, I don't know if the number is 60% or 80%, we're going to go with, I'm going to pick 80%, 80% of what I think today is what I was thinking yesterday. And that's my thought loop. And I need to engage with other people in the world in order to upset that thought loop and and get myself out of myself, you know, and being more a part of. So I, just to wrap things up, I wrote down Um, ways to be a part of something bigger than myself in sobriety. And then I did the same thing for being a part of something bigger than myself in stroke recovery. So here's what I put together. And this was a good exercise for me because this is what I'm going to continue to pursue in, um, in both really. But right now I'm I'm trying, I'm hyper-focused on stroke recovery and trying to build my community there. So we'll start off with sobriety. Um, these are the ways that I have um, learned to be a part of something bigger than myself in order to strengthen my sobriety. It started with going to meetings and that quickly shifted over into volunteering and being a service at meetings. So making coffee, um, leading a meeting, and then cleaning up afterwards. I did spend some time um, as a service rep. So that means you get to be a representative for your group um, um, in the, uh, the district um, organization. And then I've gone to some conferences. Those are really fun. Um, and then going to potlucks and picnics and dances. I have, yes, I have gone to a dance and no, I did not dance. Even though the person I was with, you know who you are, you're listening to this podcast, was dancing beside me. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not dancing. I have danced in sobriety, but, um, uh, I, I feel like being a bad dancer runs in my family And when I was younger, I thought that maybe I could dance, um, but I was assured that I cannot. And um, my daughter gave me, quick side note, my daughter gave me for my birthday 49 reasons why she loves me. And there's, so it's a glass jar 
and there's 49 little pieces of paper inside and each of them has a reason why she loves me. And one of them I opened recently says, because you can't dance. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it's true. It's true. But I'll tell you, when nobody's around, I'm a dancing queen. Okay. So uh, other ways to get outside of yourself in sobriety is to tell your story and write. You can write to, there's so many published journals and magazines like the AA Grapevine and um, all kinds of places that you can write and submit your story. Um, and there's a lot of healing in just restating your story. And sometimes the more you say it, there's more things that come to mind and you're reminded of different pieces of your story that you may have forgotten. So, and also writing to a podcast. So I was, I just found a new podcast that I'm going to listen to. And um, I just wanted to do it, uh, do a quick shout out to it because I thought it was great. And I'm going to try to reach out to them as well. But it's the AA Grapevine podcast. And you can find it on um, Spotify or uh, any of the other uh, podcast um, platforms that you use. But uh, I listened to an episode today from Monday. And, it, and it's, it's pretty good. They have guests on there and um, interview them. So pretty cool. So these types of things, great ways to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And by that, I mean, not, you know, understanding that when I'm sitting in my house all by myself, as an alcoholic in recovery, or as a stroke survivor, it's important to understand at those times that although I'm by myself, there are millions of people in the world just like me. And I need to be reminded of that because I have this part of my uh, illness is telling myself that I'm unique, that I'm not like other people. And nobody has ever experienced these feelings that I feel. It's just not true. So for stroke recovery, how can I be a part of something bigger than myself? So what I've started out with support is what I've started out with is support groups. And I started with that because that's what I started with in sobriety. I started with meetings. So I've been um, slowly because of um, my learning how to use voiceover, I'm slowly researching stroke support groups, not just in my local area, but I spoke about yesterday finding one on the West Coast that I joined that was super awesome. And I think after I get to be a part of these stroke support groups and I meet more people and hear more about what's going on in the communities, that I'll be able to volunteer and be of service in some way. I'm not quite sure what that looks like right now because I do have so many challenges with um, using digital devices 
Um, and then also getting places because I can't drive right now because of my eyes. So, but we'll figure that out. I have it on the list. Um, and I'm sure that there are larger events like conferences and different activities like I participate in in my sobriety, like, um, you know, picnics and, and, potlucks and stuff like that. So I'm going to keep an eye out for that. And uh, again, tell my story. So write to publications and organizations to tell my story. And that's another way to start meeting people and being a part of the community. So um, I found a great online um, organization. It's called strokeonward.org. So they have an opportunity to write your story, uh, your stroke story. So I'm going to do that and then um, write to, you know, look for some other podcasts and and see if maybe I can connect with other podcasters. So, um, you know, I think in summary, loneliness isn't solved by changing who's around you. It's by changing what's going on inside of you. It's not a physical or emotional problem. There's nothing wrong with you. If you're lonely, there's nothing wrong with you. And that's what I always thought. I was lonely and bored and I felt like I was different and something was wrong with me. But loneliness is just a choice. You know, I've talked about the pity party, get up and do. Loneliness is just a choice. And I've talked in previous episodes about choosing happy. I have a sign over my desk that says choose happy. And what if we saw a sign that said choose loneliness, right? I mean, it's, it's the same kind of decision. It's the same kind of choice. And I wouldn't buy a sign that says, choose loneliness. Because when I'm lonely, it's my little secret. You know, it's my little secret when I'm choosing loneliness. I don't want to broadcast it. I wouldn't put it on my wall. I'm not proud of it. Because it's a security blanket. It's like a heavy security blanket that's hard to move. Once I start feeling it, it's hard for me to get out of it. You know, it reminds me of, we have one of those weighted blankets. I don't know where it came from. I think it was a gift from somebody to my son. But this thing, I don't know how heavy the heaviest weighted blanket is, but it, I have it. It's in the closet. It's like 100 pounds. I can barely move the thing. That's what loneliness feels like. It's like this 100-pound weighted blanket that I cannot move. And the way that I am choosing to get out of that, you know, is to pick up the phone. I also have a box of cards that I bought from a, um, a local craft thing where somebody had, my friend actually, had painted some, um, 
some cards. What am I trying to say? Cards, like cards that you send in the mail. I can't think of what the name of that, you know, because we don't do it very often, <laughs> but um, cards. And um, so pick up a card or two and send somebody a card in the mail. Um, that's what I'm going to start doing. Or bake something for somebody, you know, bake something and walk it over to a neighbor. Do something that is not focused on yourself. It's, it's really hard, I've noticed, for me to feel lonely when I'm doing something for somebody else. And that's because loneliness is self-centered. And if I can get out of self, the loneliness goes away. I mean, like the flick of a switch, it goes away. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sewing a quilt right now. I've talked about this quilt that I'm sewing. I'm sewing it for somebody else. And as soon as I pick up a square and start sewing it, I am hyper-focused on this other person that I care very much about, and I can't feel lonely anymore. It's good for my own recovery to sew this quilt for somebody else. You know, it almost doesn't seem like it makes sense, but it works. On the inside of me, it works, and it feels like I can turn switches it almost feels like I can turn switches on and off, whatever, you know, at will on if I want to be happy, if I want to be lonely, you know, I can decide each day what I want to be. And every day I'm trying to choose happy. I'm trying. I'm seeking joy. And, um, and so, whoo. I feel very passionate about all that. Huh, I'm out of breath. Um, so that's what I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for um, new people that are joining. We've had some new followers uh, over the past few days. So um, welcome. We're glad to have you. And I'll talk to you tomorrow.